Today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 13, and chapter 7, verses 17 to 24. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, it's on pages 5 and 6. Please rise for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Chapter 7, verses 17 to 24. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us once more. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for your holy word. As it was just read, we now pray for your spirit's help as it is preached, as your word is proclaimed. We pray that your spirit will accompany it so that it will penetrate deeply into each of our hearts, con convicting us, comforting us, challenging us, consoling us, performing the work that you have intended for each one of us. We pray that you do this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning we are going to be studying one of the most widely known stories in Scripture. Everyone knows about Noah and the flood. I think I could ask any of the children here in service today, and, and they could be able to tell you the basic plot line uh, of this story and, and name all the characters, because it's really one of the first stories that we teach our kids. 
Uh, every you know, picture, storybook, Bible that, that I've seen would include Noah and the ark, and, and they would usually include you know, a pair of cute animals climbing aboard the ark along with the family. Uh, my own kids played with a, a miniature toy ark, complete with little wooden cutouts of Noah and his wife, and along with all these pairs of, of, of more cute, uh, cuddly animals. And the surprising thing is that this toy ark was made by a very popular toy company that is not faith-based. It wasn't a Christian company. It just goes to show just how recognizable Noah's ark is, even in our more and more secular culture. But notice how every depiction of the story is centering on Noah and the ark. There's usually, you know, mention somewhere of a coming flood, but all the illustrations, all the images focus on the ark where Noah, his family, and the animals are all safe and sound. What's never illustrated is the utter destruction of the world with everything and everyone in it which, of course, is understandable. I think I'd be hesitant to read to young children a Bible that has illustrations of people drowning in the flood. I mean, yeah, you've got to use age-appropriate discretion. But even adults, we too can have an overly sanitized view of Noah and the flood, and we can lose sight of the main point. That point being divine judgment. The story centers not so much on Noah and his efforts to save his family and a pair of all the animals, but the story centers rather on God and his grief over the sinfulness of man and his intent to cleanse this fallen world and to start over again. That's what the story's about. So this morning, what I want to do is to present a desanitized version of this familiar story, one that does include all the hard parts about judgment and destruction, one that presents a full picture of what actually happened. And there's good reason to do so. Not not because we want to glory in gore and violence, but because we know that until we recognize just how frightening this story can be, until we really feel towards sin and all of its corrupting effects the way that God feels, then we won't fully appreciate the way in which the story of Scripture ultimately leads to resolution. The good news from above just doesn't seem as good until it's set in contrast with the badness of life here in the below So we want to paint a realistic picture of Noah and the flood so that we can end up treasuring the bigger picture that this story represents. That is, of course, the beauty and the goodness of the Christian gospel. So the story of Noah and the flood spans four chapters here in Genesis, and we've been going through Genesis chapters 1 to 11. Uh, this morning, we're just going to focus on portions of chapters 6 and 7, and we're going to save chapters 8 and 9 for next week. So this morning, I want to just draw out four observations from our text. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. There's an outline. We're going to consider, first, the pervasiveness of humanity's sin. Second, the acuteness of God's pain. Third, the extensiveness of the flood's destruction. And fourth, the incompleteness of the flood's effect. So we begin with the pervasiveness of humanity's sin. Chapter 6, 
begins with a brief account of how sin, which entered this once pristine world in chapter 3, how it now continues to increase and it continues to spoil everything it touches. Now, we didn't read verses 1 to 4 earlier, and we could really just spend an entire sermon trying to dissect it because it has so many interpretive challenges in it. Uh, so we're not going to actually go there. That, that would take up all our time. But the bottom line there in those first four verses is that it's telling us that sin and perversion is on the rise, and it, it is expressed in many different ways, including illicit sexual relationships. So things are getting ugly on the earth. Sin, which started in the garden among just one couple, has now pervaded every corner of the earth and every corner of the human heart. And God notices this. Listen to verse 5 again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now that is depressing. What a sad and tragic assessment of the human condition. Notice just how far we have fallen short. Genesis 1 said that everything that God formed was good and beautiful. But here in Genesis 6, it says that every thought, of, that, every thought that humanity forms is evil and repulsive. Now, what does that mean, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Does that mean that, that human beings are, are incapable of good intentions or having righteous thoughts? It would seem to be an overstatement to say that every intention of ours is continually evil. But what I think verse 5 means to suggest is that every intention of the thoughts of our fallen hearts are not centered and are never centered on the glory of God. You see, in our natural state, we don't think about doing things for God's glory. That's not our intent. And that ultimately is what makes our intentions evil continually. And that understanding of that is reinforced in verse 11, where in verse 11 it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Remember, in, in Genesis chapter 1, God told us, to fill the earth. To fill it with what? To fill it with more divine image bearers. We're to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. So the creation mandate was to fill the earth with more people who reflect the glory of the image of God. In other words, we're supposed to fill the earth with God's glory. But instead, now in our fallenness, humanity is filling the earth with violence. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So verse 5 spells out God's moral, motiv moral motivation behind sending the flood. He has a clear reason for the flood. He has a just cause. And you might not think that's a big deal, but it really is, especially when you compare, compare the biblical flood account to all those ancient primeval flood, flood stories you know, some have tried to downplay the uniqueness of the biblical flood or to even challenge its historicity, whether or not it actually happened, by noting the similarities to ancient flood myths like the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Epic of Atrahasis. 
These are ancient Mesopotamian flood stories where, in similar fashion, the gods send a devastating flood to cleanse the earth of humanity, but at the same time, they rescue one man and his family. Now, obviously, there are some similarities there. But what is obviously different compared to the biblical flood is that these flood myths lack a clear and moral motivation. In the Gilgamesh epic, there's actually no motivation given for why the flood came. And in the Atrahasis epic, we're told that the god Enel is annoyed by all the noise and commotion caused by an overpopulated earth, which is causing him to suffer from insomnia. And so he does something about it. He first he sends a plague, but that plan is thwarted. And so next he, he sends a drought and famine, but to no avail. And so finally he sends a great flood, which the hero Atrahasis survives by building for himself a boat. So we do have a flood in all the earth, and we have rescue by boat. That's similar. But the glaring difference is that the only problem in this flood account is that there are too many people making too much noise. Now, the God of Scripture is set in stark contrast to these capricious, petty gods of the ancient Near East. You see, the Lord's motivations are actually righteous. His actions, His decisions are just responses to human wickedness and the fact that there are other myth stories out there that really shouldn't bother us. It should instead reinforce our conviction that a global flood must have occurred in the ancient past because it's not just the ancient Israelites recording that fact. There is attestation and cooperation from other ancient cultures and religions. So we should be encouraged as we read about and learn about there being other flood accounts. So, verse 5 tells us what God sees on the earth. And now in verse 6, we're told about how God feels regarding what he sees. Now, this leads to our second observation. The acuteness of God's pain. The acuteness of his pain. Look with me at verse 6, chapter 6, verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. Now that word for grieved means to hurt or to bring pain. That's why some translations say that God's heart was filled with pain. Now of course we're not talking about a physical pain here, but rather an emotional one. We're talking about grief, deep sorrow. And I know to speak of God this way seems kind of strange. The, the, the same word for, for grieved shows up later in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 6. And there, the Lord is referring to Israel's constant idolatry, and he's comparing his emotional pain to that of a deserted wife. Listen, listen to Isaiah 54, 6. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off. You know, therapists will tell you that being deserted by a spouse is one of the most painful and traumatic experiences that you can go through, which is all the more shocking when the biblical authors insist that that is the kind of pain that God feels 
towards sinners because of our sin. That's how we grieve him, like an abandoned spouse. Now, again, I realize it's hard for many of us to picture God grieving. So we quickly assume that, oh, this must be a case of anthropomorphism, you know, where the biblical author must be attributing a human emotion onto God. He doesn't actually feel grief, right? But why do you assume that? We wouldn't say that about his love, would we? I, I think most of us would say that God actually feels love in his heart towards his covenant people. We wouldn't describe his his loving feelings as anthropomorphic. So neither should we when it comes to his feelings of grief or of pain. We don't need to reject the idea of a God with emotions. We just need to guard against a depiction of God being ruled by his emotions in the way that we humans are. We can't control our feelings. We're often at the whim of our emotions. But God, on the other hand, is not. He remains completely in control. So this distinction, I think, is going to help us to also interpret what it means for the Lord to regret that he has made man on the earth. That's what we read in verse 6. Now, some translations will say that he repented of making man. I don't think that's a helpful translation because it's too confusing. We usually reserve the word for repent when we're talking about uh, moral uh, categories. We, we speak of repentance in moral terms. But in this case, we're talking really about turning or changing one's mind. And that's how that Hebrew word is often translated in Scripture as a changing of, 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 of the mind. But to say that God changed his mind is also rather confusing because there are actually places in Scripture where it says that God does not change his mind. Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. So because of verses like that, I think I would argue that in our case, when it says that God regretted making man, it shouldn't be interpreted to mean that he originally had no plans to destroy the earth. But then he was suddenly surprised by how bad things got, which then led him to regret his decision to make man in the first place, which then led him to make a new decision to wipe them all out and start all over again. Now, that sounds like something that we would do if we were God. That's, that's what man's regret looks like. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29 says, The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So friends, when we speak of God's regret, we have to distinguish that from the kind of regret that we experience based on the fact that we don't know the future and we are genuinely surprised when things don't turn out as planned or as expected. But God, on the other hand, is all-knowing. He possesses all foreknowledge, and so nothing catches him off guard. That means the pervasiveness of humanity's sin by the time we get to Genesis 6 did not surprise the Lord. But it did sadden him. It did truly grieve him. And that is why Scripture calls it regret. 
But God is able to regret without changing, without losing control. Because his reaction to sin is always going to be the same. First of all, he's always hurt by it. He's grieved. And second, he always responds to those who persist in sin with judgment. Whether it's discipline, correction, or punishment, he will bring judgment. Imagine you trying to to ride your bike from point A to point B, and you start off with a boost of wind blowing at your back. But at some point along the way, you start to feel strong resistance as you're riding. You feel the wind now blowing in your face, blowing against you. And to you, it feels like the winds have changed. But what if I told you that the wind has been blowing just as before. It never changed. It's been blowing in the same direction. Well, then the logical conclusion that you should draw is that some way along the way, you must have gone off course. You've turned back, and now you are riding into the wrong direction. You are now riding into the wind. So the wind didn't change. You did. Well, that's, I think, the logical conclusion that the people of God should have drawn in Genesis 6. When God begins to move against them in judgment, they had no reason to assume that God had changed. No, it was they who changed, they who went off course. And God predictably responds with judgment. He afflicts them with the flood, but as it says in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 33, the Lord does not afflict from his heart. When the Lord afflicts, he does not afflict from his heart. That means he takes no pleasure in it. His heart is grieved when he sends the flood. It pains him to do it. So again, verse 5 tells us what God saw. Verse 6 tells us what God felt. And now in verse 7, we see what God does. He makes it rain. This leads to our third observation, the extensiveness of the flood's destruction. And friends, this is where we have to take off the kids' gloves and deal with the text with all of its uncomfortable aspects, all of its difficult details. So let's take a good look at verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So God's plan is to wipe, wipe the earth clean of all humans, including all land animals, bugs, and birds. It's because of man's moral corruption But even so, even morally neutral animals are impacted by our corruption because the curse of sin is really just that pervasive. The animal kingdom is negatively affected by humanity's poor choices. As it was then, so it is even now. Now this language of blotting out refers to erasing something by by washing, uh, by the application of water. Typically when, when you see this word in scripture, it's used to describe the washing out of ink from a scroll, usually in reference to blotting out someone's name from a book. 
It was also used figuratively to describe the washing away of sin. But here now in verse 7, God plans to wash away the sinners themselves. His plan is reiterated for us in verses 11 to 13. Look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, friends, there in those three verses, there's a key word repeated four times. The word is corrupt. It could also be translated as ruined or spoiled. And so we're told that the earth was corrupt. It was ruined. Behold, it was corrupt, ruined. For all flesh had corrupted or ruined their way on the earth. Behold, this is the fourth instance, I will destroy them. Now that word for destroy is actually the same Hebrew word as in the other three instances, the word that's translated as corrupt. Now translating it there as corrupt would have been confusing, and so the translators use the word destroy. But the Lord is saying, just as they ruin the earth, I will ruin them with the earth. I, I think using the same word to describe both the earth's conditions and God's action is deliberate. God is going to ruin what has already been ruined, to destroy what has already been destroyed by man's sin. This is important because it places the blame for the flood squarely on humanity. We caused the ruin. God responds as he always does with justice, with just judgment. Look over with me at chapter 7. Go to chapter 7 and look at verse 17. And starting there, let me read. Chapter 7, verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. Skip down to verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Now it's hard to imagine how many people and how many living creatures must have died during that flood. Those are visuals that we'd rather not have. And I understand no one wants to think about God sending this flood to destroy, to, to blot out people. We, we'd much rather focus on God working with Noah to build an ark in order to, to rescue man with a boat. That seems more like the God that we know, the God that we want to focus on. But Scripture paints a fuller picture, an honest picture of God both as the God who judges and the God who rescues. And if you think about it, what, what actually needs more justification in this story is to explain how God could rescue anyone considering how everyone on earth is fallen, including Noah and his family. We have difficulty accepting the fact that God sent a flood, but the ancients, 
People back then, they would have had difficulty accepting the fact that God provided an ark. And that's why space has to be given to explain this fact, to justify why one man and his family are actually spared. Look with me back at chapter 6, verse 8. There needs to be an explanation because that's what people were wondering. How can he be spared? Verse 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. That word for favor could also be translated as grace. He found grace in God's eyes. Now, notice how it says he found favor. He found grace. He didn't earn it. He didn't win it. He didn't merit it. Favor was something freely given, and he simply found it. Noah found favor in God's eyes. And notice how his righteous character is not even mentioned until the next verse. And I think that's intentional, that it comes afterwards so as not to confuse anyone, so that we don't assume that it's because of his good character that God showed him this favor. If that was the case then verse 9 would have come before verse 8. That logically would have made more sense to explain the causality. But instead, the text is deliberately written the way it is in order to emphasize that God's favor, His grace, is freely giving because of His loving kindness, not because of anything in us. Now, so far in verses 5 to 8, the focus has really been on the Lord, as you can tell, because he is the principal character in this story. But now when you get to chapter 6, verse 9, the focus does shift onto the most prominent secondary character in the story, that being Noah. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, to call Noah blameless is not to imply that he was sinless. That word is used elsewhere to describe sacrificial animals that are free from any kind of physical defect. The word could also mean whole, as in all the parts of the animal are there, they're all working, all their eyes, all their limbs, they're all there and they work. It's a whole lamb. It's a wholesome lamb. And so in the same way, you, you could interpret this as saying Noah was a wholesome man. He was a good man. He was a righteous man. And likewise, to call him a righteous man doesn't mean that he was a perfect man. According to Scripture, to be a righteous man, as we learn later in Genesis chapter 15 in regards to the righteousness of Abraham, means to be a man of faith. A righteous man is a man of faith, one who believes God, who takes him at his word, and this interpretation of what it means to be a righteous man is reinforced for us in the New Testament. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, the, the hall of faith, you go there and you'll see in verse 7 it says, By faith, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah, like Abraham, his descendant, is an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith, by believing. 
which we're told will inevitably express itself through good works, through faithful obedience to God's commands. And that's exactly what we see evident in our text. If you look in chapter 6, verse 22, it says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And the same sentiment is repeated later in chapter 7, verse 5. He did all that God commanded him. Now, go back to Genesis 7 and and go back to verse 9. Genesis 7, verse 9. And notice how it says, oh, sorry, 6, verse 9. And notice how it says, Noah walked with God. He walked with God. Now, that same phrase shows up earlier, a couple chapters earlier, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, where we're told that Noah's great-grandfather, Enoch, walked with God. It says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, that usually is taken to mean that Enoch did not die, because everyone else in chapter 5, they have their little synoptic end with this concluding phrase, and he died. But not Enoch. His synopsis, his synopsis doesn't end with that. And so Enoch is understood to be delivered from death. Well, in the same way, just like Enoch, Noah walked with God, and he also is delivered from death, death by flood. Now, friends, let's, let's bring this home for a moment. Like, I, like we said earlier, until we come to grips with the bad news of universal judgment that extends all the way to you and I, because we are sinners, we are sinners who have contributed to the corruption and ruin of this world, friends, until we recognize the bleakness of our predicament, we just won't appreciate the good news of the gospel of grace. The message that says that you are not doomed for destruction. The message that says that you can find favor in God's eyes if you believe in him, if you take him at his word. By faith, you too can be a righteous person, a blameless, wholesome person. And how do you know if this is true of you? How do you know if you really do have God's favor? Well, it's simple, really. You ask yourself, am I walking with God? Am I walking in obedience to God's word? Not perfectly, but faithfully. Do I have a walk with God? Now, I'm not saying that's something simple to do, but I am saying it's simple to know You will know them by their fruits. So how is your walk with God? If it's non-existent, well then, yes, you should be concerned. And I hope this flood story serves as a dire warning of coming judgment. And I I hope you turn around. I hope you start walking with the Lord, walking with Him again, or walking with Him for the first time. But if you are walking, even if it's slowed down to a crawl, the important thing is that it's happening with God. You're crawling with God. Because that 
is still a sign of spiritual life. That's still evidence of his grace, that you still have favor in his eyes. And I hope that that encouragement, that good news, motivates you to pick up the pace and to start walking again in full stride. So where are you? How is your walk? Now, if we look back at that section that we read in chapter 7, verses 17 to 24, you're going to notice how extensive the flood's destruction is. Uh, We're told that it rained for 40 days, and the waters increased greatly on the earth. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that we are told the highest mountains uh, under the whole heaven were covered by water. So the flood did have its intended effect in blotting out sinful humanity. But, friends, what we'll soon discover is that the flood did not fundamentally change human nature. And this leads to our fourth and final observation, the incompleteness of the flood's effect. Think back to when we studied Genesis chapters 3 and 4. We saw how after the fall of man there arose two lines of offspring interlocked in a perpetual generational conflict. There would be this ever-present enmity between the offspring of the serpent, and we said that that represents fallen humanity opposed to God and His will, in enmity and conflict with the offspring of the woman, fallen humanity redeemed by God and now serving according to His will. In Genesis 4, we saw how Cain and his descendants were representatives of the offspring of the serpent and how they increased in wickedness. And we also saw how Abel was of the offspring of the woman, but his life was cut short. So Seth, another son of Adam and Eve, who appears at the end of chapter 4, he and his descendants are the ones that perpetuate the offspring of the woman. And that's chronicled for us in chapter 5. Remember, The flood account began when the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Chapter 6, verse 5. So God sends the flood to blot out the offspring of the serpent and to preserve the offspring of the woman by saving Noah and his family. That's what's been happening. And the plan is effective in wiping out all traces of Cain's descendants. The flood cleanses the earth of the serpent's offspring. But after the waters subside, after Noah and his family, along with all the animals, leave the ark, we read in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, the Lord drawing the same conclusion about humanity as before. Genesis 8, verse 21, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Alas, it appears that even after the flood, sin still pollutes the human heart. We come to discover that the serpent's venom and sin's effects have penetrated and spread so deeply and so widely throughout the human race that even now the offspring of the woman has been corrupted so that even Noah and his family give birth to both the offspring of the serpent and of the woman. 
In other words, the flood was effective in cleansing the surface of the earth, but it was incapable of cleansing the heart of man. And by the time we get to Genesis 11, the world and humanity in it are back in the same state with the wickedness of man great on the earth and every intention of his heart evil continually. But redemption was never God's goal in sending the flood in the first place. Remember, we said that this is all about divine judgment. And according to 2 Peter chapter 3, the Genesis flood foreshadows a future coming judgment, not by water, but one day by fire. The heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But friends, in the middle of human history, another judgment was carried out. Another righteous and blameless man was called out, but this time he wasn't given a way out. This time, this man was thrown right into the flood. He was cast into the stormy waters of God's judgment, and he accomplished what the flood could not complete. He secured our redemption. Because he bore our judgment. This man, this Jesus, whom we call the Christ, has become for us an ark of salvation. So that anyone, and I mean anyone, who calls on the name of Jesus can be saved. All who hide themselves in Christ will survive the storm of coming judgment. That judgment by fire. And so I urge I plead with any of you who have yet to find refuge in Christ, would you please flee to Jesus? Make him your hiding place. Make him your shelter from the storm. Make him your ark of salvation. Let me pray for you. Oh God, we thank you for giving us an honest picture of this familiar story, reminding us that it is about judgment and we should not shy away from that. But thank you, Lord, that your word does not end with judgment, but it ends with redemption. It ends with renewal. It ends with hope, the hope of salvation in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And I pray that all of us here will hide together and find refuge in the ark of salvation called Christ, and that you would empower us by your Spirit to walk with you a blameless and righteous life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.